Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, right smack in the heart of Times Square. For those that are here, that have been here before, and I'm delighted to see so many familiar faces, you'll have to bear with me while I tell you that the Wing does more than present the Tony Awards. Perhaps we're best known for that. But we do an all-year-round program which goes to hospitals, schools, and does the, the seminars that you see here this morning. Those that are taking place in the seminar are the finest that the theater has to offer. They come out of their desire to, to work and share their knowledge with people that are interested in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theater Wing. And before we go any further, too, I would like to thank Bob Isaacson, who is director of Cumbin, and his splendid crew, which has done so much to make this all possible. Bill Riley, our program director, has talked to you about the need for volunteers to help us carry on these programs. We need them in the office. We need them to help us do all kinds of things. So if it's at all possible, please volunteer your services. You will find some of our volunteers in the audience wearing the wing shirts. So go up to them and say, yes, I want to help. We need it. Now I will turn this over to Henry Hughes, who is a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing, and Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing, and they will co-moderate this seminar, which I think is one of the most splendid that we have yet to offer. The, the seminar today is on the play script. Thank you very, very much. Maybe go on with the Thank you. Well, today we decided that we would have create a, a Pulitzer Prize section and put all the Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights over in one area. And so we started... We still have segregation in the theater. We started, so we, on our far left, we have Edward Albee, who uh, didn't win a Pulitzer Prize this year, but who did win... <laughs> who did win, uh, who has won them in the past, and, and he won one that he didn't get. So uh, <laughs> how many is it, does, does that make? One and a half or two? Two and a half. Two and a half. <laughs> and uh, his current play, uh, The Lady from Dubuque, uh, had a short career on Broadway, but is going to be born again in Hartford uh, next month and is having European productions. Next to uh, Edward is Lanford Wilson, uh, who, whose Tally's Folly won the Pulitzer Prize uh, this year. Next to uh, Lanford is Eve Merriam, who wrote uh, a very interesting uh, play about, I guess you'd call it um, feminism in a way. It was at least a, a how the, the, um, the, uh, the British uh, treated uh, their ladies in, in around the turn of the century called the club. Uh, well, it was said in America. Yeah. <laughs> but we're cousins. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, I always think of, of clubs as British because Robert Morley always comes on. And, 
Anyway, uh, next on my left is Gene Dalrymple, uh, who never won a Pulitzer Prize, but who ha had, did write two plays when she was very young, one of which was produced on Broadway. And uh, next to me on my right is Sam Art Williams, who ha has written a play called Home, which was produced uh, to enthusiastic reviews at uh, the Negro Ensemble Company, and which is moving to Broadway uh, in about a month. No, end of this month. End of this month. 29th of April. <laughs> and next to him is uh, Ruth Wolf, uh, who uh, is kind of an expert in historical plays. She writes, uh, she wrote the, the Abdication, and uh, she's currently working on uh, a somewhat historical project, which she'll tell you about. I think the best way to get into uh, our, our discussion is to ask each of these uh, playwrights to say a little bit about their latest uh, work and how it came into being uh, and after that perhaps a little bit about some of the problems of having after they had created the work uh, the problem of getting a good production of it and I think we might start with uh, Edward you might. <laughs> I'm sorry I can't see you all, uh, the, these, these silly lights. I like to see people that I'm talking to, but nonetheless. Uh, my most recent produced play is, is The Lady from Dubuque, which, uh, as uh, Henry mentioned, had a rather brief experience in the commercial theater on Broadway. Uh, whether the play is any good or not uh, will be determined somewhat in the future, 75, 100 years from now. So I'm not going to uh, pass judgment on the opinion of uh, our critics, uh, except to remark that, as usual, I got, if you take any 20 reviews, 10 very favorable and 10 loathsome <laughs> reviews. The, uh, every, single, every single play of mine has done that, including Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which Walter Kerr said had a hole in its head. <laughs> which led me to a number of speculations. <laughs> and the now deceased critic for the New York Daily News who said it was a cesspool. Uh, the basic difference is that in those days, in 1962, a play could run in the commercial theater on Broadway with mixed reviews. Now, uh, it cannot. Uh, well, calling a play a cesspool is a money notice now. <laughs> well, he also <laughs> almost is. <laughs> this, this same man also, also wrote in, in, in his infinite wisdom that it was a play that should only be seen by dirty-minded women. <laughs> and the day after he wrote af, the day after he wrote that, the, the line of dirty-minded <laughs> at the. At the box office was uh, uh, quite lengthy and probably added half a year to the run of the play. Uh, uh, no matter. Uh, the Lady from Dubuque was uh, my 19th, uh, 18th produced play, um, and I rather enjoyed the experience of it. Um, it is being produced in various places around the world, and uh, I don't know what else need be said about it. There was a good deal of problem in. in uh, the producers raising the money for the production. Whether that has something to say about the play or the producers, I don't know. Uh, the commercial theater is such a curious place. And after 20 years of experience in it, 
I find it more and more curious all the time. Uh, I have uh, several other projects afoot. My adaptation of Nabokov's Lolita for the stage is going into rehearsal October 15th with um, Donald Sutherland playing Humbert Humbert and various other people in the cast, including some 12-year-old girl that I can't possibly even think of casting until September 15th, because if I do, she'll be too old. <laughs> and I have two other plays that I plan to work on this summer, one quite long and one quite short. That brings me up to date. The, when, when I talked to you after uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you had a play called The Substitute Speaker. I did indeed. And. I read somewhere that the lady, lady from Dubuque, to some extent, uh, had, some, had some roots in the substitute speaker. Well, if you I'm, keep a play in your head long enough, it's bound to mutate. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I suppose the substitute speaker did turn into the lady from Dubuque. A, a kind of sea change and a title change and uh, uh, not a fundamental thematic change. The play was still about how much reality people are willing to accept before they uh, turn us off. Oh, that explains the reviews, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lance, do you want to say something about uh, Tally's Folly, which, is, I, uh, which uh, is part of a trilogy, but I understand that it was written out of, out of chronology. In other words, it wasn't, it ha it was the, it, in, the in the trilogy, it, it comes, it happens earlier, but you wrote it later. <laughs> uh, if there's going to be, if there is going to be a cycle, it'll probably go backwards. And uh, but I, I don't promise that or anything. I, I I said one day that there was a possibility of writing a number of plays <laughs> about this family or about the history of the family and the house, uh, roughly at various during various wars. And uh, if I do that, uh, there should be five of them or however many uh, that I decide to do, but I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not announcing a, a, a cycle or anything like that. Was it a quintility? I, I was wondering. Someone, someone said something, Tet something or other, but I, I'm not sure about that either. Sex, I think, goes in front of Tet. Tet yeah. offensive. Uh... <laughs> anyway, what do you want to know? Uh, yes, uh, I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote a play called The Fifth of July, and, and in, in working on the play, <coughs> I, <coughs> since many of the people, it's covered several generations, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, I, want, I wanted to uh, work out the history of the family, and in, and, and in, in, Getting that straight in my mind, I real uh, from the time that the house was built uh, in 1860, I realized there was a a lot of very interesting things had gone by, and uh, said, in well, maybe I took, could write that. You took a character who was had died, was referred to as dead oh. in the in the uh, Fifth of July, and then went and when went back and and yeah, and uh, in in working on uh, in uh, in Fifth uh, of July, there is uh, a batty old aunt. And she's uh, who's carrying her husband's ashes around in a box. And in working on what she's talk, she's remembering her husband. And working on uh, on her, I said this was really a very beautiful marriage. I really quite quite love the, this combination of people. And I said, if I were ever going to write a play for Judd Hirsch, this would be the part. And and told Helen that, and she was thinking, uh, Helen who played the part, she was thinking about Judd as she sang the speech, and uh, 
And then I, I started sort of roughing in Tally's Folly. So it, it came immediately out of that, uh, the experience of writing it. Do you think that uh, being a, a kind of charter member of Circle Repertory uh, over a period of years where Judd, has also, Judd Hirsch has also uh, uh, been working for six or seven yeah, years. Both of mine. Uh, and Trish Hawkins, too. <laughs> but the, uh, in a sense, do you think this has made playwriting easier for you because you know that you can always get a, your plays done by this company? And you, and you also, when you are writing characters, you, you can say, well, you, can, you know what uh, certain actors can bring to it so that, in a sense, that instead of, uh, like Edward, having to write a play and then wondering if it's going to be ruined in the casting, you, you almost uh, can s circumvent that danger by knowing um, who's going to play it, who's going to direct it, and most important, important of all, that it is going to be done uh, uh, shortly after you finish it, rather than having to wait like... Edward does sometimes for a year before they can raise the money and so on. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry you set yourself up for that. Uh, that about says it, yeah. <laughs> also, uh, Henry, I've never had a play ruined in casting that I've had anything to say with, about the casting of. Mm, of course, man. <laughs> Well, I'm just I'm trying to mentally go through all the <laughs> plays that were ruined by casting and figure out... Well, you must have seen productions that I wasn't involved in. <laughs> there are enough good actors uh, Oh, there are a lot of good York. actors in this city. An awful lot of good actors. If you, if you wait occasionally, you have to wait a bit, but you can find them. Yeah. I, think, I think Edward has taken more responsibility about uh, the production of his plays than most playwrights. Most playwrights, they write a play, and, and after they get the initial production and they see to it that the original production is as good as they can possibly make it, uh, they abandon it to Samuel French or whoever's going to handle it. Edward uh, uh, is, uh, tries to take more responsibility in seeing to it that there are not uh, odd productions of, uh, of which distort the meaning of, of well, I think we have to. The problem comes I mean, really when we can. Lines, uh, I think mm -hmm. we have to when we, if, when we can. I mean, if we can, you start. Yeah, playwrights don't even read their contracts half the time. Especially in, in first-class uh, in first class, uh, uh, pro commercial productions, the playwright's contract says very specifically that he has control over casting and the choice of director. And when casting goes awry in a commercial production, it's usually with a beginning playwright who doesn't have the, the guts or the, or, or the knowledge or, 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 the, uh, or whatever to stand up for the rights that his contract contains. Um, well, I think in many cases they don't know either. Well, they should read their contracts. Right well, they there know the about the contract, but they don't know but when you they not see all actors if they're... Right. You were not all that secure when you did the zoo story. Mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't you accept almost any cast that would, that would be willing to do it? Well, that was fairly simple. That was a two-character play. Yeah. Uh, I remember I had seen an actor who has since vanished uh, named George Maharis playing um, in uh, Genet's Death Watch. Uh, off-Broadway at about 1958, and I thought he was an extraordinarily violent actor, and it was very interesting. And so I wanted him uh, for the role of Jerry, and it turned out that he was available. Uh, I had worked with the director, the man who directed the play for the first two weeks till we fired him. I'd worked, I'd worked with him at the actor's studio, in, uh, or rather, I observed him working at the actor's studio. And I forget how we got Bill Daniels. I think I'd seen him work somewhere else. So I didn't have any problem there either. You begin with a certain innocence, I suppose, and, and you'd be a fool not to take uh, some people's advice from time to time. 
but it's your own play and uh, whenever you have any degree of control over it you should exert as much responsibility as you can because it's much more fun to go with your own mistakes than somebody else's <laughs> absolutely I think that this is one uh, one of the things that we ought to try to get across today and I'm sure the other panelists will speak about it that if they, I ever shut uh, up they will uh, if you if you have a production of, of your uh, your play that uh, by and large fulfills uh, your image of it then even if it's uh, rejected you at least have had a fair shot at it whereas if somebody comes in and saves your play by uh, tampering with it and uh, strange casting and, and so on uh, you say well I, that wasn't really the play I wrote and if, uh, so you don't know whether it failed because it was the uh, the uh, for not your fault or whether it was the fault of the production and uh, <coughs> I think that playwrights should be encouraged to insist even at this very early stage of their careers in fact it's probably even more important at the early stage because you're, get, you're getting your confidence and uh, you want to say something about that Lance? Uh, no. <laughs> Eve? Uh, well I can recommend my current production which opens April 23rd for 10 performances only at the symphony space unqualifiedly because Shakespeare wrote it <laughs> it's called dialogue for lovers and I did a theatrical arrangement of the sonnets uh, I suppose in a curious way it might be related a little bit to the club in that it is done by a woman and a man rather than having the sonnets performed only by a man but it's a I think it's going to be very rich and exciting. How many uh, sonnets are you doing? Roughly 59. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I divided it into five sections so that it traces the course of a love affair, including a quarrel, a going away, a coming back, a second going away. I think one always goes away at least twice, and a final <laughs> reconciliation. And I debated whether to use any Shakespearean lyrics for linking because it has music bridges, but I wanted to keep the sonnets in their essence. So we've used songs by Dowland. In a few cases, I've done a little rearrangement of lyrics but um, of Dowland songs. But I think it really works in quite a seamless way, and we will see. Um, Estelle Parsons and Fritz Weaver, I find, are stunning it's very difficult to find actors who are comfortable in Shakespeare and above and beyond that comfortable with poetry because so often they are either on a teleprompter with it or it's like sitting at your typewriter you know they get to the end of a line and, oh ping that has to have a rhyme even if it is not with a rhyme but they sort of go through you know end of the sessions a sweet silent thought oh god you know I'm waiting for a rhyme for that and Estelle and Fritz have become very very comfortable and at ease with the iambic line which is quite natural to our breathing in the English language anyway so I'm very happy about that the other piece that I have in the works is not by Shakespeare but unfortunately by me um, and it's based on a book of poems that I did it's called a husband's notes about her and again there are just two in the cast the only two sexes I could think of at the time <laughs> and um, that will be done as a showcase in the fall. And I have another piece sort of wandering around, which is called Lady Macbeth of Westport. So that's kind of what I'm up to now. And uh, 
As far as getting your plays uh, done, uh, do you have, uh, uh, you, you had this great off-Broadway success with the club. Uh, do you find that you are having a relatively easy time now? No. Uh, well, the Shakespeare, I was, asked, I was asked to do something for Shakespeare's birthday. Uh, and the showcase, there hasn't been trouble simply because somebody fell in love with it, a tape that we did of it in which I invested 700 bucks of my own money for the first time, so I trust I will get that back. But um, what Lance has had with Circle, I used to do everything at the Lenox Art Center. And I must say that I lust for a home now. Uh, I really do. I think that, that knowing that whatever you do is going to have some kind of production there and being able to think of possible actors again is enormously helpful because while there are dangers in that in that you may sometimes sort of change the edge of something to accommodate a certain personality if the actor is good enough of course that actor is going to be a chameleon and fit into what you do um, I would be amazed if most playwrights didn't have that tremendous longing for a home Jean, uh, do you want to say anything? Uh, Sam, you uh, f found a home uh, in more ways than one. It's very good. It's very good. Sam has been working with the uh, uh, Negro Ensemble Company for several years now, haven't you? And yes. perhaps, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how home uh, was created, and uh, in, in telling that, perhaps say a little bit about how their uh, workshop uh, works to to, to develop playwrights? Well, I've been in the uh, playwrights workshop at the NEC for since 1973. Um, and during the same time, I'm also an actor, so I became a member of the, of the resident company doing you know, two or three shows a year down here. And um, the playwrights workshop, I, I, I had been writing since college, since I guess like around 1966, but nothing really developed or anything really came out of it until I got in sort of a structured kind of a situation. And the NEC has a playwrights workshop down there who um, is taught by Steve Carter. And I don't know, I just got sort of turned on by it. And I developed several plays in the playwrights workshop, five of which have gotten showcase productions. Home has you know, been the biggest thing for me, sure. And um, it was in 1976 that uh, the germ for Home sort of came about. Because I'm from a place called Burgall, North Carolina, which is a small town on the, in southeastern North Carolina. And I'm afraid to fly, so every time I go home, I have to catch the bus. <laughs> Drag to it's 15 hours, man. <laughs> and uh, so I was on this bus, and I'm seeing all these people going south. Most of the people uh, were black. And I wrote a poem, and I sort of likened the trip to a voyage on a slave ship. Of course, it's in a different time, you know. So I thought I was doing something really cute, you know, really esoteric. And I really sat down with the point, and I said, hey, you know, a good play could come out of this because usually Southerners are usually considered to be hicks in the North. And um, most people think we don't have very much substance other than, you know, being able to plow the fields, you know, run barefooted in the woods and that kind of thing. So, so I decided that I would write a play that would sort of like show a different side or would show all dimensions of what Southern folk are all about and Southern lifestyle. And but it was about a Southern farmer. It wasn't about a Southern businessman. 
Uh, no, it wasn't because Southern farming is my background. Oh. My, uh, but to be a Southern farmer, you have to be also be a Southern businessman. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, now, even more so, because you need $300,000 today to tend 25 acres of land. It's amazing. Where my grandfather had a mule. Me and the mule. <laughs> so, uh, and you worked harder. Yeah, I worked harder. The mule had it made, man. Uh, so, you know, I, I wrote this play, and I put experiences that I had uh, and uh, we used to do a thing called pull the same where we'd stretch a net across the river and we'd catch up fish we'd all, Saturday night fish fries and I worked for a couple bootleggers when I was coming growing up you know making moonshine and, and a couple of characters people that I met then I had a high school sweetheart who I'll forever love for the rest of my life and she's married to somebody else and uh, so like I just put all of these elements together and I shaped this play uh, with poetry and uh, dialogue and home was is actually my 10th play uh, that I've written, and I don't have an agent. I like agents, but I just can't find one that gets along with me. I don't know why, because I'm easy to get along with. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so I took home around to, and I really have this thing. I've been rejected by every theater in New York City. I mean, everybody said, no, we can, it won't work. But why wouldn't NEC do it? Well, I don't know. NEC, like any other theater, is. Um, I guess they figure that time has to come when they feel right about a play. Um, the first draft of the play was a two-act play, so I took it around, everybody said no. I did another draft, which is also a two-act play, so finally I said I would join the acts together. Well, that didn't work either, so I was, you know. I, uh, so then finally, last year, they had a reading series at the NEC. They read the play. I don't know if somebody was counting laughs or what. <laughs> Evidently, somebody must say this is an enjoyable play. And then they decided to do it. But I was very happy with, you know, with just the off-Broadway production. It's a, it's a resident theater. And so I didn't really expect any more out of it. And so now, here we are. You know? I think one of the wonderful things that, uh, and I think some of the other people on the panel have mentioned the fact that uh, the, the relation between poetry and, and theater, and that is that an awful lot of people write poems, and of course, there's no, there's absolutely no future in writing poems. There's no, there's no money to be made, and yet, poems can be po poetry uh, can be very valuable to the playwright if he dares to use it. Now, uh, in your case, uh, you used it on a very almost primitive level. It was, it was used in relation to very, uh, uh, earth, to very ordinary, simple things. It wasn't complicated poetry. It yeah. was simple poetry. Well, see, the thing is, I think that my first feeling about poetry is that poetry is personal. I mean, <clears throat> somebody might read your poem and never get what you intended. I mean, that's your personal feeling that you're putting down there. With a play, you have to realize it has to be dramatized, that an audience has to relate to this poem that you're writing. So as beautiful that, as you think that poem might be, it might be so complex that it doesn't fit within the context of your play nor will anybody understand what the hell you're saying, you know, and it still might be a great poem. But in doing home, I had to realize that someone else besides myself is this, I want to convey the same feeling, but in a language that could be understood within the context of, of a dramatic piece and not just to make it a poem. Because uh, I think that in doing home, what makes it work is its simplicity. If it were a complex play, it wouldn't. If these people made broad, intellectual kinds of statements. It just not, it wouldn't work for what I was trying to say, nor would it work for the characters. So its simplicity is, you know, it, it's what makes the poetry work. 
I think it was wonderful that you used it, and I, and I think most playwrights say, well, I better not use po poetry in my play because it's, it, it'll, people will think it's pretentious. Uh, and because uh, people, after all, in life don't go around talking poetry. Although Shakespeare got around that somehow, yeah. didn't he? Well, you know, I, I feel that, uh, uh, that, that in every writer or in everybody is, is that romantic element, is that passion element that, <coughs> that yearns to come out. And it always comes out in all of my writing. And I think that the worst thing that a writer could do is to try to stymie or try to hold out <coughs> those particular feelings. Um, even in works that are not that don't contain poems in my particular works, there is a certain kind of poetic ring. And I think that's why I have so much problem in getting it produced, because the first thing a producer says, well, it's melodramatic, it's syrupy. Well, of course, but I mean, hell, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, it's all, that's all, I think that's all right, personally. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, I think that uh, it also so shows the writer's love for his work himself and other people. Uh, it's, in most of my works I have, two plays now. One is called The 16th Round, which is a three-character play if there are any producers out there. Um, 16th Round being the round that after the fight is after over. After the 15th round. After, it's, it's like after you wrote the 5th of July, which is the day after the 4th of July. Yeah. And it's about... Uh, right? <laughs> it's about a fighter who's 40 years old and he wants to become the heavyweight champion of the world. He's dying of brain damage in his room, which he hasn't been out of in 11 months. That sounds like a very, very great subject, but in the end, it's, it's really about hope. There's another play that I have I'm working on. It's called um, Brass Birds Don't Sing. I've been taking this play around for four or five years. I've done several drafts on it. It's about the Liebensborn maternity homes. It's about two sisters who were Polish Jews who came, up, came out of the Liebensborn maternity homes in um, Poland and Germany in World War II. They were the maternity homes that Hitler had set up to breed the Aryan race. Oh, yeah. And these two women were Jews, and they got in by mistake, of course. <laughs> and, they're, and they're living in New York in 1961. I might sound like a very great subject, but I think it's the way that you treat it, the way that you choose to treat it that gives it your own individual style <coughs> as a writer. Ruth, uh, do you want to say something about your latest project and how it uh, came about? Well, my latest project is a play called Sarah in America, which is about Sarah's American tours. Sarah Bernhardt. Sarah Bernhardt's American tours, yes. And that came about really because I had done a film about Sarah Bernhardt. I had been asked to do a film about Sarah Bernhardt, which uh, Glenda Jackson starred in. And I was very interested in the American tours, and they said you can't handle the American tours. They absolutely wouldn't allow the American tours in there, and I thought, well, that's the best stuff. So this play, unlike my other historical plays, this one is really based on newspaper clippings of the Times. And if you can imagine going through yellowed copies of 40 years of newspaper clippings, you have all these bits and pieces. Um, but it covers her from age 36 to 74 and has a real story, so I don't call it a one-woman show. I hate it when anybody says a one-woman show because to me that's usually one person telling you their life, and this really has a structure. And, well, you have and a second a character, the maid who comes in, maid who, played who, by, her, by the actress's dresser. Either, yes, yes, who says <laughs> nothing. But the thing that interests me about all of this, of, of, of how plays find homes, is that I have never found really a home in this country uh, you were at the, my, the O'Neill quite a bit. Uh. Yes, I was, but the O'Neill is not really a home. It's kind of the thing that you get out of 
and uh, most of my most of my uh, substantial success has been abroad so that really stuns me I mean I in a way I suppose I consider myself an American playwright in another sense I feel that I don't belong in this time or in this space uh, because the abdication for example which I wrote some years ago uh, was optioned by an American producer but the first person who wanted to do it was uh, Ingrid Bergman so I got this call one day I was living in Cambridge and someone said could you fly to Paris and stay with Ingrid Bergman for a week and <laughs> I allowed as how I could <laughs> I remembered arriving there in the advanced cases of jet lag and saying Ingrid Bergman is, is puffing up my pillows <laughs> and it was just stunning stunning to me what, Ingrid anyway, good <laughs> And uh, but Ingrid didn't do it. That play received its world premiere at the Bristol Ovic in Bath, England. And uh, talking about rights and what rights we playwrights have, before I left for England, I had to agree that I would see the first reading but would not attend any rehearsals. Mm. I had to give up. Ev I had to approved. Abdicate. I had to abdicate. <laughs> I had approved the leading actress, but I approved nobody else. I had no say at all during that rehearsal time and during that time while all this wonderful rehearsing of the Bristol Ovic was going on I was wandering around uh, this wonderful Georgian city absolutely stunned saying to myself what am I doing here and going reading Jane Austen and drinking the waters at Bath and <laughs> speaking to no the only time I ever opened my mouth every day was to say I'll have the lemon soul please <laughs> just, I couldn't believe all this was happening so my play an American writer's play opened at um, one of the oldest theaters in England and uh, the British critics were very interesting because they thought it was kind of odd that uh, British Arts Council money should be invested in an American play. That disturbed them rather a bit and I didn't dare say about how much American money has been put into British plays, but that was that. Uh, the audiences were marvelous. We did not go on to London, but two weeks later Warner Brothers bought it for the movies. So without going anywhere, you know, without passing go, without collecting $200, that play went directly to the films. And uh, I was very lucky in that, to my astonishment, they asked me to write the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling up people and saying, how do you type a screenplay? Just right. finding out how do you do that. And I loved that work. I loved, uh, some playwrights don't, but I loved writing the film and making that into a screenplay. And um, that opened, starring Liv Ullman and Peter Finch, uh, it opened the same week as Scenes from a Marriage opened, by no coincidence at all. And uh, I think Ingrid uh, Leif always does better in her Swedish films than her American films. Anyway, so there we were with that movie. Uh, at that point, I couldn't get a production for that in the United States because the film rights were gone. And nobody wanted to give it a first-class production. So it just so happened the two Italian actors were walking down Hollywood Boulevard and saw that film and loved it and someone said to them, there's a play and they said, we'll do it in Italy. So uh, <laughs> two years ago, uh, they were doing, going to do this play in Italy and I thought, fine, but I kept getting these very strange 
notices, like, for example, they changed the title. They said, the abdication doesn't sound good in Italian, so we're going to call it Confessione Scandalosa. And then uh, they also said that they had another script which they were working with, and I thought perhaps they had found a copy of the film script, and if they had put those two together, I didn't own the film script. So that if uh, they had done that in any way, I could have been sued. So I left for Florence, not speaking a word of Italian, I left for Florence to go to this incredible opening where I thought I was just going to die. And when I arrived there, they said I could come to a run-through. And they said, uh, don't come to the run-through tonight, just come to the opening tomorrow. And I thought, that's it, take the next plane, just go home. <laughs> that's it. So uh, I went to the opening in this most extraordinary theater in Florence with the wonderful tiered balconies and the red velvet. And it, had, it was an ancient theater, but had recently been remodeled. And the curtain went up on the most extraordinary production of that play that I had ever seen. It was totally modern, which is what I've always wanted. I always say my historical plays are modern. They should be done in modern settings. Now here, I had not had one word, I had not exchanged one word with these people, and they had put on that stage a setting by Mario Cerulli, who's one of the leading Italian act, uh, uh, sculptors. We're doing a production that was so full of life, so full of modernity, so full of sexuality and wondrousness, that I was absolutely overwhelmed. And again, I could not believe that the best theatrical experience that had ever happened to me was happening to me in Italian, and I was alone there. And it was quite wonderful. I tried to get American producers to go over to see truly how wonderful it was. It played for six months up and down Italy as a major success. As far as I know, no American ever saw it. So it was like a tree falling in the desert. There we were. <laughs> I just want to ask about an agent in this room, because you brought up the well, fact that yeah. you do not have an agent or did not have an agent, couldn't get him in. Did you have one doing all of these trials and tribulations? Yes, I had Audrey Wood. Audrey Wood. And yes. Audrey could not protect you on your British contract? And, and Correct. I see. Uh, there's, a very, there's a very odd point there where you have to make a decision. It seems to Audrey and I at the time, you have the, either you're going to have this production under these circumstances or you're going to have no production. That's a very hard choice. And at that point, we felt, get the play born. I mean, I felt it was being born by cesarean section without uh, anesthetic, but get the play born. And that's what we I did. I think and the thing that we, might, that we might go into now is this question of uh, historical plays have a hard time getting uh, uh, produced. Plays about uh, uh, farmers in North Carolina have a hard time getting produced. And I think. I think maybe uh, the, you, this very interesting play you have about these two Jewish uh, ladies who uh, got caught up in the Aryan home is going to have a very difficult time being produced because... Going to. <laughs> uh, one of the complaints in, in this very prosperous theater that we're now in, in the midst of uh, is that the playwrights uh, don't seem to be writing uh, plays of... Uh, of his, great moment. They're, they're, they're writing plays about past personal experiences and uh, or uh, light comedies or, or whatever it is. But the th 
in general, we, we miss uh, playwrights who are trying to tackle uh, uh, Im important problems in, in, in an exciting way. And I wonder if uh, Edward and, and, and uh, Lance and Eve and uh, Sam and Ruth have some feeling that they, that they better just write to suit themselves because uh, the world is, can't be changed uh, much for the better anyway, so, uh, or do you write with a feeling that uh, uh, you want to write a particular kind of play because that's the kind of play that producers uh, have a receptive, uh, have, will receive? Edward, do you want to? I don't know where you get this theory, Henry, that our playwrights aren't writing plays about uh, uh, subjects of any matter. It, it is, it is commercial producers who don't want to produce plays um, yeah. about subjects of any matter. We probably have, in one area, a healthier theater now than we've ever had, in the sense that, as opposed to 1960, when the off-Broadway theater was really born, 1959, 1958, 1960, and there were a few of us around, uh, Jack Gelber and uh, Richardson. Jack Richardson and Arthur Copet, and then he came along shortly after, <laughs> and then Leroy Jones uh, was still called Leroy Jones, and he was writing interesting plays, and Adrian Kennedy, and a few other good playwrights. Now, we probably have ten times as many interesting playwrights, uh, young playwrights uh, uh, under 40 years of age, who, who are doing work probably as interesting, if not more interesting, than most of the stuff we were doing we back in 1959, 1960. Uh, the theater has changed um, to counteract uh, th this healthy development of the whole generation of good playwrights. The commercial theater has gotten further corrupted by, by, by economic pressure. Uh, most of your serious playwrights are having their work done first in regional theaters. Mm -hmm. And the ugly thing that's happening there is that so many regional theaters are letting themselves being used as tryout houses by, by commercial producers that a lot of your regional theaters are lowering, lowering their standards of judgment to get the brass mm -hmm. ring. Uh, you've got a very healthy theater in the sense you've got an awful lot of very good playwrights. You have an audience that, generally speaking around the country, still prefers escape rather than engagement and lies rather than the truth. Uh, you've got a commercial <laughs> situation which is very difficult, but you've got, you've got a very unhealthy and a very healthy theater at the same time. And your best playwrights, your most interesting, toughest young playwrights, are always doing work that is enormously pertinent. And you, you can't axiomatically say that the degree of pertinence will determine the lack of success, uh, though you almost can. We have a very, he we have a very healthy theater well, culture. We have a very healthy theatrical culture, in the sense we have an awful lot of good playwrights and an awful lot of good actors and good directors. We don't necessarily have a very healthy theatrical environment. They, they, only, they only know that we have a healthy theater in America in the colleges where all of our plays are usually done in, in, the, in the colleges. And mm -hmm. when I went, to, uh, went out to Indiana to talk to a group of people, like Edward, it's the only time I've done that. Edward does that all the time, he's, he's, he's speaking across the country. <laughs> and I, I, I talked to a, 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 a class of contemporary American drama. And you know exactly what I was expecting. I, I thought that contemporary American drama, they would be reading, Edward would be absolutely the last on the, on the list, and then they would, uh, Williams and, and Miller, and Inch, and I, 
I went, they were reading, I couldn't believe my eyes. I said, this is, this is our reading list. And it started with Edward and, and Rochelle Owens and, and Rosalind Drexler and all of these, these really rich, kinky, strange, not particularly good, but, but particularly <laughs> extreme and, and, and exciting. I mean, they were, they were reading contemporary American theater. It was very exciting. So out there, we're all famous. In New York, you know, uh, we're we're lucky. We're very lucky to get to get our play on. It's it's. Uh, is there some? Is it there isn't some? Our fault is what I'm trying to say. In a certain sense, it can be argued that that many of your plays, which uh, are about things that happened in Missouri or Baltimore, uh, are, in a sense, uh, explorations of your uh, of things in your in, in your past. Uh, as a, and yet it can be argued that that in uh, in go, in uh, exploring these things that you are in a sense making a comment on uh, on the present. And uh, well, I, I mean, would hope, or else I'm wasting my time. Sure. I mean, I'm I'm not just just turning inward and escaping from the world or anything like that. I, w I would certainly hope. Uh, and and also I, I I'm I may be bothered by spending all that much time in Missouri and and I'm, I mean I've been working for a year on the on the quote next one end quote and I don't really know that I'll finish it because I, I am I, I do want to uh, write a play that takes place in in uh, uh, Southampton and I, well there's a there, there's a lot to say about there there's a funny play in in Southampton and and I and, and I've been I've been wanting at least to, one yeah it's a funnier I, play in Montauk I've been wanting to write yeah. no I, I give I give Edward from East Hampton to Montauk but I've got to take from Southampton over to the over to the North Fork <laughs> you know all all, all uh, you talk about memory plays and personal plays all almost all serious plays unless they're done by a totally didactic playwright, or they start with uh, with the microcosm, which uh, should reflect the microcosm, right? It should work that way. I mean, uh, did Chekhov set set out to, to write necessarily about the, about the collapse of, of middle upper middle class society in, in Tsarist Russia? No, he was writing about uh, some people who were trying to get to Moscow for, for reasons only known to them. Uh, everything starts a, a, as as the microcosm. Uh, uh, it, it must. Well, Chekhov also was writing very much with an idea of writing something that was going to be amusing enough to entertain people, and it's, and, and it's ironic that uh, in doing that, he, that he turned out these uh, masterpieces, which uh, are played usually much more somberly than, than he had intended them. Yes, it depends uh, on your production, doesn't it? I, I find the, the college is very seductive as an atmosphere. I was playwright in residence at Ithaca College last term, so Lady, they wanted an original play, and Lady Macbeth of Westport was done there. When Hanfin had turned it down, other people had turned it down, and um, they were able to spend so much by way of the production. It was absolutely stunning. And I had thought everybody in the cast would double and triple, but of course, in a college production, they want to use the whole theater department. So, you know, it's like a mob scene in Aida. Um, they did a really stunning production, and I have been trying to get somebody to look at it since for a commercial production. And they say, no, it is unrelenting, it is too serious. 
it deals with our commercial culture and what you have to do to be a success in it. And the husband oh, known absolutely kills himself. <laughs> uh, yeah, you should have <laughs> known better than that. <laughs> and um, so I'm sure it will stay at, at the yeah, colleges. But I found what you did too, Lance, I thought, my gosh, they would be doing the equivalent of six who pass while the lentils boil. Mm -hmm. And uh, there they are. And they are very a la mode in their tastes and what, what goes on. So in a sense, you sort of get spoiled to come from that into the possibility of an off-off Broadway production after you've had all of the riches of, of colleges. Um, Broadway seems to get worse and worse, dependent on bankable names, as Hollywood is dependent on bankable names. Off-Broadway has become Broadway. Now the off-off Broadway scene is so ludicrous. But I wish somewhere, I don't know whether the theater wing, or, um, somewhere I still come back to finding a wing for us chickens. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think also that there, there's, there's, there's a real bright side is that being an American playwright, we have more I think we have more to choose from in terms of subject matter and in terms of material because, because by this being such a melting pot and everybody coming here, if he's a sharp writer, because a lot of plays can be written through observation, research, and if you watch people, regardless of who it is, you can get an idea of what they're all about as an ethnic group I'm talking about. And there's just so much, so many rich things that a person living in Italy probably can only write about the Italian experience. But an American can write about American Italians, black Italian, Jewish Americans, whatever. You know, it's just, you know, so many people here. And I think that one thing is really going to have to happen that will improve it is that it seems to be in recent years the approach to writing about mankind is that man is basically an evil animal. Well, I, I don't really think that. I think that people start out good and it might be circumstances and environment that changes them to something else. So being right here in New York, we sometimes don't realize that there is another world out there that just don't live, that just don't have subway crime, that don't have robbers and folks snatching pocketbooks every day, you know. And uh, I just did a southern tour of a play, which sort of like really brought that to light, is that you, the front page is not covered with murder. I mean, you don't pick up the morning paper and see that six people have been shot overnight. So it gives you a, a different kind of feeling inside when you sit down to write a play, is that you can begin to see that uh, all people are not bad. So it, it really shapes your work in, in, in a different fashion. Well, Edward, Edward went to Iowa for his last play. He got drew that from uh, Dubuque. Well, I think I'm going to have to bug out of New York for my next show. <laughs> <chance. laughs> We're going to have to take a break in I'm a few seconds. Oh. But I'd like to not that. pass by Ruth's statement about the Italian producers doing this play completely without her and coming up with a glorious play. Does that have something to do with the playwright only being there as an obstacle to the producer? Or is it having confidence in the type of producers and the whole production that you choose? And Mr. Albee has used the same producers, or the same producers have used you, whichever way you want to put it, in almost all of your productions. <laughs> I think that there's a, a very important point that you just, it's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that, and I think it should be elaborated. I, I think that when we, when we come back, uh, I'd like to talk about that if we could for a second or two. Yes, and right now we're going to take a break. I'd like to, to speak about the producer's part because I have produced many plays yes. and in many instances the playwright has been an obstruction to the production of the play and many plays were not done because of that. <laughs> 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 
producer has a side to wanting to improve the play beyond the the playwright's intentions and whether or not the playwright sometimes in his obduracy creates a problem for the producer that in a way in the long run works to the disadvantage of the whole theater. And Gene as an ex-producer of over a hundred shows, I think is perhaps the ideal person to... As a producer. I mean a producer, I'm sorry. As a producer. But you don't have anything on at the moment. That's right. Okay. Uh, so, would you want to start off? Uh, yes, uh, I want to tell you an experience that I had that I think was quite unique because I took a novelist and told him that he had a marvelous idea, uh, not for a novel, but for a play. And he said he didn't know how to write a play, so I said I would show him. And uh, so I sat down and I worked with him. I actually was the collaborator on the play. And at the end, uh, he said, well, do you want credit and part of my royalties? And I said, no, because I'm going to produce it. And I don't think that I should do that. And I was very stupid <coughs> because uh, he read his contract, uh, Edward, very carefully <laughs> as soon as I got him from the Dramatists uh, Guild. And <coughs> he began to make a great deal of difficulty for me, particularly after we went into rehearsal when he decided he wanted to rewrite. And he kept rewriting speeches and making them into paragraphs. Uh, he'd take one line and, and uh, make a whole page out of it. And it was really very disruptive to the rehearsals and he kept insisting upon it. And uh, uh, I, I had this awful problem. The play finally got produced, but it wasn't anywhere nearly as good as it had been when we started rehearsals. And uh, uh, he made a great deal of money out of it because he was the author and it got produced all over the country and uh, also in Europe and in England. And I, as, as the producer, got absolutely nothing. And uh, uh, of course, producing is uh, a job that no one should do if, if uh, he or she wants to make a living because uh, you have to wait years before you begin to make any, any money if a play is a hit. Then I had another experience with, uh, with a, 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 I thought, a very good play and a very amusing play, but it would have run about three and a half hours, which is rather long for a comedy, I think. And, uh, <coughs> and uh, so I suggested that the uh, playwright cut it, and he said that he loved every single word, and he would, <laughs> he would rather never see it on the stage and just have it and read it himself, but have it cut. And, and so he's still reading it. <laughs> but uh, many other producers have uh, told me that they've had the same problems, particularly after the director has come in. And a director always has his own ideas. And of, of course, you don't do that with an Edward Albee play or a, a, a very well-established playwright. But in a first play, I, I think that very often the director can be an enormous help. And, uh, uh, well, for instance, when Josh Logan took Picnic, 
and uh, uh, cut it. I had read the original script and I thought it was very boring. And when I saw the play finally produced, I found it fascinating. But William Inge hated what Josh Logan had done to make it a success and put it back into its original form and produced it somewhere else where it failed. Uh, still, I believe that the, his original version is the one that is published. Uh, but that was a, a, a very strange case. But at that time, Inge was not known at all. It was that play. And I always thought Josh's word, work that made it a success. So there, I've spoken for our side. <laughs> well, I, maybe some of the playwrights can talk about uh, their experiences with uh, people who, who try to uh, reshape well, their plays. To, to generalize. Yeah. Uh, there, I'm, there, are, there are all kinds of playwrights. I mean, there, there are playwrights who, who should never go near a, a, a production, I'm sure. And there are playwrights who don't have any concept of acting or any, or, or who have, are more loyal to their friends who may be dreadful actors than, there are, than they are to, uh, to their play. And there, there are others of us who, who are thrilled by the theater, who know, who, who know what they want and have a very good idea of uh, of what will work and uh, and are practical in in the uh, in the in the theater and, and can understand when a director says I think that line is better if you reverse it or I think you know the center you have three sentences and they're all saying the same thing which one do you really want either you want all three or you say oh you know what I have three sentences that are all saying the same thing and I only need one of them uh, sometimes there, there are things that we just want because we want them. I mean, uh, there are a couple of speeches in, uh, in the Mound Builders that should not be there, but I couldn't possibly cut them. So I understand uh, when someone says, uh, uh, I want every single word, yeah, sometimes we do. <laughs> and, and you say, it weakens the play, I know, but I really have to have that. And there's just no... There's no logic except this is very important to me. Well, you know, one thing I think that uh, <clears throat> producers and directors have a tendency to treat writers like kids. Once you get, they don't understand that you're still men and women uh, with feelings. They get to play, and all of a sudden it becomes their show. <laughs> you know, the director says, Are you come to see my show. The producer says, You come to see my show. The writing director says, It's my show. It's not your show. It's the writer's show. And. Uh, <laughs> That's where the problem lies. They don't realize that this man has created these characters, these people. They're out of his head, out of his heart, out of his body. And nobody's going to give you that and say, hey, you run with it. Do what you want to. Because if you could write, you wouldn't be producing. You would be writing, you see. And if we wanted to be producers, we would be producers. Uh, so it has to be, what I'm saying is it has to be a give and take kind of situation. I think that most writers in their right minds who want to get a production on are flexible enough to say, hey, look, I'll take a little here. Of course, we'll try to put it back over here. You know, if you're dumb enough to let him get away with it, well, I mean, that's your problem. But the thing is, what I'm saying is that producers don't realize that you're dealing with men and women, and not just the writer. Uh, people who don't know what, we do know what we're doing. That's why uh, you're able to live on West End Avenue or wherever you live, because writers write plays. Now, we can have those same plays produced on street corners as in Shakespeare's time, and uh, charge people a quarter and still make enough to pay the rent. But I'd like to see you produce a play without a play in your hand or without a writer. 
You see, now that's the difference. And I think that most plays can be worked out is that the most viable uh, means for a writer to work is play out is in workshop. Because with actors and with people who are constantly saying, look, this is right, this is wrong, but first, let's try it. Because rewrites, for me, are the most exciting. Say, let's try it first. Don't tell a writer, this won't work. You, you don't know it won't work until someone has said that line, someone has put an inflection here. Yeah. Uh, you know, producers don't, most of them don't have much imagination. You know, they sit and they read this as, oh God, that just will not work. Until an actor says that and makes it his own, uh, you don't know. So unless you've heard the spoken word, you know, I think they're a little quick to say cut or to do this. And that's the problem I have with them. That's the problem I have with agents, too. Well, <laughs> Audrey Wood, who is yeah. Yes, Oh, uh, Jane, yeah. then, then uh, I must answer you because, you know, I do realize that writers are persons and wonderful people, and I admire them very, very much. I'm a writer myself. I started that way. I was a playwright. And uh, uh, I came to Broadway because I had a play produced by John Golden. Uh, and I have been a creative writer all my life, therefore I, I feel very warmly toward uh, playwrights. Uh, I don't say that, uh, that I read a script and say this won't work, or that won't work, or I want it changed. I never did anything like that. Uh, I think that a lot of the producers today are not producers, I think they're promoters. I think they're people who take a script, and if they can get the money to put it on, then they become producers. So there are several but, different kinds of producers. Yes, but discovered there's some, on the seminar. Well, exactly. But uh, there are creative producers who do know something, and they uh, don't say cut or do anything of that kind until they do hear the word spoken, uh, which is usually in rehearsal, and uh, or sometimes in readings. I always have any play that I'm interested in, I have it read several times. I have a couple of actors and actresses right here who have read uh, plays for me. Uh, I wouldn't think of trying to do a play without listening to it first. So that's e my defense. <laughs> well, Jean Dalrymple is not your average run-of-the-mill stone producer. Um, I wanted to pick up on some things that Lance said. I tend to do a fair amount of rewriting during rehearsal and I pride myself on I'm known as the fastest pen in the East. <laughs> um, I think that producers like you are devoutly to be sought. Not all of them are that way. Um, it's one of the reasons that I think there is what seems to be this terrible schism, the idea of Broadway producers, not all Broadway producers are the same, of course, but uh, it, is, it is a problem for the playwright. I don't think so much in the ones who are stubborn and who say, no, I won't change it. It's conceivable to the, that a three-and-a-half-hour comedy may be extremely funny at three-and-a-half hours. I think the problem is in the other direction, that we tend to be too accommodating. I was amazed because I came from the world of books, and if you write a book and it goes out, people read it and they either think it's lousy or they think it's terrific, but nobody comes to you, even with galleys, and says, you know, you should change this or you should make the man a woman or you should set it in Iowa instead of Southampton. And when you are in rehearsal and in previews, everyone, everyone, it's like that old Mark Twain joke about you just go up on the street and you say, how's your second act coming along? Everybody tells you how your second act should come along. And you feel like an advertisement for one of those headache things. But you, you get overload. You absolutely cannot take it all in. And I think the problem is just the reverse. 
that we are too accommodating and will very often say, yes, okay, 10 minutes have to go, take out 10 minutes, or yes, that line has to go, or this. And one doesn't have the time to stand back and see. And I think for Edward to spend the time that he does ensuring that the kind of productions are there, and I'm sure checking on the fact that they are doing all the lines. I have come back, I have seen a production of a play of mine, and a whole prologue was put into it that had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the play. They didn't put any lines in, it was a dumb show, but I just sat there a dumb show myself and I didn't know what I was looking at. Well, isn't the basis of the problem that the theater is uh, unique as an art form and that, uh, well, certainly, the time, uh, 20 years ago, the, everything depended upon a whether a play worked or didn't work. And uh, there, there was furious rewriting on every play uh, uh, to make the, the play work. And that was, uh, that was the objective. Since that time, I think we've uh, had so many uh, programs to develop new playwrights. And uh, the, there have been grants being given to playwrights for that purpose. That the playwright is, is now, is now f feels less economic pressure on him than he did at the time when everything depended upon making the, 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 the play work. And a, as a result... As less I, economic pressure? Yes, because you can, you, you can get a grant, you can, uh, you, can, you can have your play done at a resident theater. Uh, you can have it. In other words, every. Would you pass that pipe, Henry, so we can the old, have a little. In the old days, Broadway was the only game in town. Henry is talking about second class citizenship. <laughs> that a playwright, that a playwright indeed can have his play done uh, in a safe regional theater environment, in a nice protected environment, but he becomes a second class citizen because he is penalized economically and other ways in his career because he's not conforming to, to the commercial notion. Every play that's any good works. All plays work. Oedipus Rex works. Um, Barefoot in the Park works. Uh, they, they both work. And, and a play should work to its intention. The big problem comes when somebody's trying to turn Oedipus Rex into the same kind of experience as Barefoot in the Park. <laughs> Or, or God help us all, the reverse. <laughs> I like to say that. Yes. Maybe, the maybe the producers who, who, 20 years ago, wanted something, wanted to make a play work and cut and shape and, 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 and paste, uh, maybe they're in television now. That's where a play is made by the producer to work. And it's a very good... Uh, medium is a very good showcase for that kind of surgery. A playwright yeah. should be reasonable, of course. Yes. He should judge whether the producer and the director and the actors and the producer's wife's boyfriend and um, <laughs> etc., whether their judgments on the rewriting of a play have anything to do with the making the play clearer, making the play more absolute to its intention, or whether it's, ju it's, it's just uh, uh, commercial greed. Mm -hmm. And what the playwright should do is if it's, if it's an attempt to lessen his play in order to make it more commercially successful, unless he's dying to sell out, um, he should resist these temptations. And if somebody has a good idea which is going to make his play a lot clearer and without doing any damage to the play, he should accept that but pretend it was his idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, uh, I think the classic case of this was David Merrick's production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, which cut at least a half hour out of the original play. 
And to my opinion, having seen both productions, I think that the American production succeeded for me much uh, more than the English production, which was full of wordplay. Now, this is because in England, audiences like to hear a lot of words. They like to, they like to have people play games with words. It's, it, it's part of their culture. In America, we tend, we tend to be more blunt and, uh, and, and want people to get on with it. We want action. And I think that somebody, uh, hopefully it should be Tom Stoppard himself, but if Tom Stoppard doesn't, somebody uh, like David Merrick has to say, look, uh, this play uh, is not going to uh, go if, if people are going to pause for all this uh, verbal uh, fireworks that you've, that you've uh, put in it. It may work in England, but it's not going to work here. But it must be done with the accommodation resist. of the playwright. Yeah. I was, uh, well, he did accommodate. Surpri yeah. Surprised, Gene, that you had this problem with this uh, novelist who had never written a play before. Because indeed, uh, while a playwright is protected by the dramatist guild contract that nobody may cut or rewrite his text without either his doing it or his permission, the producer is also protected in the dramatist guild contract that the playwright may not enormously alter his script once it has been leased. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see how you got in that problem. Well, but, uh, I didn't want to keep fighting uh, with him, so I let him uh, oh. go ahead. You know, it was uh, very disagreeable. Well, playwrights should fight uh, for their rights, and producers should fight for theirs. How much alteration does enormously alter cover? <laughs> could I, um, could I, it's subject yes. to uh, negotiation. Yeah. Before, uh, could I say one thing? George Bernard Shaw said that plays are not written, they're wrought. And that is why they spell playwright <laughs> W-R-I-G-H-T, not W-R-I-T-E. <laughs> Before we go on to agents and, and their role in it, uh, yesterday on our performance pan, uh, seminar, we had three actors that talked about having that enormous and wonderful rapport with the playwright and how much they developed their character by talking to the playwrights. They did not speak of the director nor the producer. Who were they? Um, <laughs> I want to use them. Yes. Uh, they were very, very flattery. And uh, Earl Hyman and... and uh, um, Judd Hirsch. Judd Hirsch and... Tony uh, Roberts. And Tony Roberts talking about the playwrights. And that they had developed so much by just talking to the playwright yeah. mm -hmm. and how important this was to them. What happens then? Where does a director come in? And is that not then the producer's responsibility to get the same kind of rapport with the director and the actors and the playwright? Is that what you're looking for? And when we talk about producers, you've talked about producers as money people. But also, isn't there an artistic direction that a producer should have, or a responsibility? Well, a producer has really all the responsibility in the end, along with the playwright. It's a real What's the A, the B, the C of, of responsibility, starting with the playwright? The playwright first, of course. But then the director and the producer, the three of them, uh, How do you feel are all about responsible. That? Playwrights. How do you feel oh, about We that? hope for a situation where everyone involved sees the play exactly the same way and does their share in, in <coughs> producing it, if it's the sound designer, you know, does their share in producing everything correctly. And, the, and in that situation, the producer can talk to an actress and we don't worry about that because the producer is is helping this actress achieve what we all want to achieve exactly. and the writer the writer can talk to the designer and the, the director can talk to the producer and no one is talking behind the other person's back in a situation where someone wants something a little different you see how that perfect circle begins to get a little eccentric and uh, 
those are the experiences that I don't like to talk about or remember. Well, I, I had a, the experience I'm having now with the, the, the producers that are taking home to Broadway, uh, in my experience, are, are the best that I've worked with to date, you know, which I've had, well, this, these are they're the third commercial producers I've worked, other than resident theaters, which are always all right as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so, I mean, they, they, they know what's happening. They've had, well, three hits. So they, they know how to, they have a rapport with writers. They have some kind of track record. They've done it before. So everything is all right there. But I had an experience just before this where someone had optioned a play of mine to do off-Broadway. And I think that the good producers really last, and the bad ones somehow sort of like just drift away like bad actors or whatever. And uh, these people, they wanted to make it a family production. And I won't call it the names, the daughter was a well-known actress who is terrible. <laughs> you know, but when you impose this on a playwright, you say, you option the play, and then you give him a list of who you want in the play, and the writer knows himself that it just won't work. You know, that's just, it's things like that that make it unfair to the writer. I think and it's those kinds of things that makes it, um, that make it unbearable for him, you know. And then there is the, the, the guy who was producing said that there's no play in the world that he can't do. And I've never seen a man on stage in my life. I know his father's well known. You know, I don't know what he can do, and it's these kinds of things, but he had the money to do it. Now, if you just want to say, well, he's got the money, let him do what he wants, then you just ruin your play, because you, the writer, has to live with that production, not the producer. I want to open to this to questions now, but I, before we, uh, while you're getting up to the microphone to ask your, your question, uh, perhaps some of you might say something about uh, how an agent can protect you from or help you with a producer. If also, how, you, how do you choose an agent? How do you get to when you're not Edward Albee and you're not Lance Wilson? How do you get to an agent? Agents are those people who want you when you no longer need them. <laughs> I don't agree completely. Ruth and I both have in the same age an Audrey Wood, and I would go to the ends of the earth for, for Audrey. I think she is astonishingly loyal. She is tenacious about her clients. And I don't think any agent can do an enormous amount for you if the work isn't there or you already seem to be getting somewhere. But I, I just think she is the most marvelous person there is. And she reads everything and she goes through it. She's completely open to new and young people. And um, I've had literary agents, all of whom were impossible, and she is the one agent I have ever met. Did she get, help you get rid of this unwanted prologue? Uh, no. <laughs> no. no. What about no. Mr. Wilson? Question here. Uh, my name is Mara Swanson. My question is for Mr. Albee. Uh, the first play I ever saw on Broadway was a couple of years ago, and it was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I thought for the first time that it was the way I wanted to see the play done, and then I happened to notice that you directed it. And my question is this, would you have been able to direct the first production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And what motivated you to bring it back to Broadway? Did someone incite you to do it? Or what were the circumstances that brought it back and made it so successful in my mind? In 1962, when Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was first done, I could not have directed the production, but not for the reason you might expect. Uh, it was merely that I was a very bad director in 1962. Uh, I didn't realize at that point that there was any craft involved in directing. I assumed that since I sort of wrote plays naturally, that I could direct plays naturally. 
and I sent out a touring production of, Who's Afraid, of, of the Zoo Story in 1961 to the foothills of Pennsylvania that was, without question, the worst production of that play I've ever seen. Uh, the director, me, clearly had no idea what the play was about. Uh, no sense of anything about the play. So I, I, I learned the craft of being a director by studying with the directors who were directing my plays, people like Jean-Louis Barrault and Ingmar Bergman and Peter Hall and Alan Schneider and people like that, and learned something about the craft of directing. My whole point here is that I don't think that it was because I had already seen other productions of the play that I, that I could direct it with whatever efficiency I did, because I think I directed the world premiere of Seascape uh, just as well on Broadway as I directed uh, the revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I learned the craft of being a director, and that's a very, very hard task to learn. So no, I could not. If I had known the craft of being a director, <coughs> in 1962, yes, perhaps I could have directed it as clearly as I did in 1976. Can I just ask you what sure. were the circumstances that brought it back with you as the, as the director? Oh, I got a phone call from Colleen Dewhurst who said, uh, in that lovely voice of hers, that she finally thought she uh, was old enough to play Martha. And, uh, and I said, I, I think that's an absolutely wonderful idea. Let's put a production together. And so um, uh, it happened. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jack Shalom. Uh, I'd like to ask Mr. Wilson, uh, what would you like an actor to keep in mind as he first approaches one of your plays? Is there a spirit or an essence or something that... Uh... Oh, boy. I, <laughs> I don't know. I... I... <coughs> I, I told Marshall that the subtext of, of Huddell Baltimore was, I love this play, I love my part, I love everyone else on stage, I love being here tonight. I wanted, I, I, that's the sub, I wanted a, a joy just pumping through, through that play. And, and we kept telling the actors this as, as on those evenings when it be, would begin to get very depressing and very long and, and very boring and very strange and everyone would get very self-involved. Uh, I like actors who listen to other actors on stage. I, 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 I saw a play the other night where it was done as an opera. Uh, you don't, I thought we wouldn't see that anymore. I mean, every love scenes were played straight to the straight to the audience with with the other person you know the, the partner sort of back there and they'd check every now and then and people were only acting what i call acting when they weren't speaking they were listening to the other person and every once in a while they forgot their pose and really listened and that was exciting i i respond to the respond to the person who's who's talking listen to the person and don't have too many preconceived ideas about the points you want to make. That way, you sort of leave yourself alone and, and something actually might happen on the stage. Are you involved in the... But that's the sort of play I write. If, if, uh, I, I don't know if I would want to see a, a play of Edwards done quite that way. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Are you involved in the audition process when they are casting your plays? Uh, oh, yes, of course. I'm, I'm involved in... I, I, 
get rid of me. I mean, I'm, I'm involved in, in all of the, the readings, all the casting. I'm there every day at, at, at the rehearsal. And I, I love it. I love the whole process. Yeah. Of, I think of most, actors, yeah. most actors who are nervous about auditioning feel, now what, what should I give, show this, this particular playwright that's going to make him want me? And I think that that's, uh, I don't know whether you know uh, what the answer to that is, but, uh, but you might say that uh, from uh, experience, uh, what are the qualities in an actor when he's auditioning that, that, that make uh, you, make, that are sympathetic for you, that make you, make you want to uh, hire this actor, even if he may be slightly wrong for the part. The, uh, at that circle rep when we audition for the, for the company, uh, we insist on, uh, no, there, there are no monologues, there are scenes. And it's amazing how many people can turn a scene into a monologue. But, uh, <laughs> and that's what, that's what we're trying, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people who, who, are, are relaxed and leave themselves alone and, and listen to people and respond to people uh, in, in front of someone. So responsiveness really is. Yeah. The worst thing that actors do, excuse me for a moment, the worst thing that actors do, in case there's some actors here, at auditions, especially these awful cattle calls that uh, equity demands where you have about two minutes to talk to the director and if you're lucky the playwright, is that the actors come in having prepared a whole set of attitudes. Yeah. And the only way you can judge anything about an actor, aside from watching him do a scene, is a, a, a kind of chemical, electrical response that you get if the actor is being absolutely natural. And so many actors come in preparing attitudes they think are going to impress the director or um, impress the playwright, and that completely gets in the way because there's no time to break through all this nonsense mm -hmm. to find the true nature of the actor. Sorry. Right. It's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. My name is Patty O'Brien, and this is for Mr. Albee. As an actress who works a great deal at New Dramatists and in Jean's, the play Jean is interested in, it is so exciting to be a part of this collaborative process and to watch the characters grow and be rewritten and be almost totally different in the second or third draft, like Sam was talking about, how exciting that time is. However, I get the feeling that your people, for the most part, leap full-blown full from your head onto the page. Do you rewrite much, if at all? I've, I've discovered that there is really very little time in the rehearsal process for rewriting, especially in the commercial theater where you've got four weeks. I meant in drafts. Do well, you have... I, I, what I'm trying to get at is rather than do rewriting uh, during rehearsal, I do my rewriting before I give the play to anybody to do. Uh, I do two or three drafts of a play. I keep a play in my head for years before I trust it, trust it to the page and, and let it evolve. And so I probably do far less rewriting during rehearsal than most playwrights do because I like to think I've done most of my homework when we go in rehearsal. That's the difference there. Uh, with Claire in A Delicate Balance, uh, whom I do for monologues when mm -hmm. one has to do that. She's got, a good, tell me She's how got she... a good one in Act One, yeah. It's, yeah. it's the yeah. best. <laughs> the best. And I felt on working on her that she was born and came out of you whole. Uh, every dot means something to me. Every tense, there, it's so specific. How did she evolve? Well, I, I perhaps write more specifically than a lot of playwrights do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I learned from, from Beckett and, 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 and Chekhov and a few other people <laughs> that there is a certain precision uh, involved in playwriting. And if you really think you know the way you want a line to sound and the intention of the whole piece, 
you can be very specific without limiting the actor's creativity. And so I try to be quite specific. I don't write a play down until I know my characters terribly well. I, I do a, a form of author's improvisation with my characters. I'll take them out uh, uh, for a long walk in my head and, and, and think up some scene that couldn't possibly be in the play that I'm planning to write. And I test my knowledge of the characters by improvising dialogue for them to see if they behave like individuals and how well they can handle themselves in, in a different situation. And I don't write them down un until I trust them. And you've done half of the actor's job. Well, some of it, yeah. Really? Yeah. Some. Thank yeah. you. You know, you, you strive toward inevitability. You don't always get there. Miss <laughs> Dalrymple, I'm Mary April Brown, and I'd like to know, how do I get you to read my play? <laughs> <laughs> If you come to the yeah, seminar you, and you ask that question. <laughs> Just put it here. It is that. <laughs> My name is Mary Zell, and I'd like to address this to Mr. Alby because I know he's written screenplays. And uh, the problem uh, I'd like for you to consider is that writers have to make a living. And the money in Hollywood and television and films and whatnot is so much more attractive to a playwright that the theater, who's dying for good plays, is losing the writers <coughs> to uh, the money. What can you offer as an enticement to a writer to write for the live stage? Oh, a couple. <laughs> Before I get that, though, have you, is your play copyright? No, it's not. Don't give it to her. Don't give it to anybody. Gene's <laughs> okay. Never, as a general rule, never give a play to be read to anybody until you've accomplished two things. Have a copyright and also have enough copies and always include a stamped self-addressed envelope that Henry mentioned. <laughs> Never let it play out of your sight until you've copyrighted it. I mean, Gene is not going to steal it, but somebody, some other producer might. How do you copyright? Would you what you do you? is you write to the Library of Congress in Washington and ask for copyright forms, which they send you. I believe you have to send two copies of the play and 10, 15 bucks or something. And the play is then copyright in your name. But as a general protection for yourself, never let a play out until it's copyrighted. It's very important. The incentives. Uh, for, for, for keeping writing on the stage, I think fundamentally are that it's so much more wonderful to write for the stage than it is for the film because you write for the stage, you're your own boss. You're not an employee. Uh, you write for a film, the director and the producer are the boss. You're an employee. Your contract gives you absolutely no control over what you've written. What you write for film can be rewritten. It can be rewritten by you or by anybody else who wants to rewrite it. You are at the mercy and the whim of the director, the producer, and the actors. When you write for the stage, uh, there's a certain amount of respect. You're leasing your work, uh, not, not selling your time. Also, there's, I think, a far more fundamental difference. Uh, the film is basically a visual experience. I would imagine that a film is probably apprehended about 80% by the eye. A play, even though you see it on stage, is probably taken in the reverse, about 80% through the ear. Uh, the stage is a writer's medium. Film is not. I mean, th th those are 
what I have found about, yeah, about yeah, the differences between the two. I would like to address this a little bit because I've written four screenplays now, and I. I take a little bit of umbrage that the only reason that writers write for the films is for money. Oh, it's no, true I'm just that, that some you make a living and yes, you have a yes, family to support. Yes, and that say. practical aspect is very strong. However, there are certain ideas which, as they come to you, you are the writer, you you get the ideas, are filmic. They are basically filmic, and you know that that is an idea that cannot work on the stage. I think that since we live in this era, when the films have, have gotten to something so quite spectacular and very special, that if you have an idea which expresses itself quite visually, and often in silence, in gesture, in, in something either very small or very large that can be seen whose appeal is perhaps not primarily through the mind and through words, then you have a right as the writer to come up with that concept and to have it realized as best as you can in the film medium. Uh, the film medium <coughs> is a wonderful medium. I hate the idea that playwrights must stay out of it um, for moral reasons. <laughs> My name is Liam Brosnahan, and I'd like to ask Mr. Williams if you've ever met with any sort of resistance from agents or producers, for instance, your, your play about the two Polish-Jewish women. Uh, have you ever had a feeling that they've said, well, you know, you're black, you're not a Polish Jew, whatever, so you can't write about this? Because uh, I once had a, a reaction from the Negro Ensemble Company that, well, you're white, what are you doing here? <laughs> and you know, I was kind of surprised, so I was wondering, since since you work with them a good deal. Well, I can't defend them because I'm Sam Williams. I, you know, yeah, I know. I'm not I'm on administrative staff now. Sort of I can't tell you why. I'm just asking if you've had that reaction elsewhere, though. I'm just, just... Well, I think that, I don't, I don't think, I wouldn't call it um, a resistance. You know, there might be a reluctance. I don't like to deal with it on those terms. I know personally that racism exists in America, the world, consciously and subconsciously in people. I don't walk around every day saying that my rejections are racially motivated by people that reject my work. If I did, I'd go stark raving mad. Uh, so would you. Um, I take it on an individual basis. Racism might be the root cause. I'll never know because they never tell me that, you see. Just as uh, the Negro Ensemble Company probably didn't tell you uh, well, you're white, what are you doing here? I mean, they probably didn't say it in those words. That, that no. might have been the feeling that My, you got, you see. Okay, well, the thing is that the Negro Ensemble thing was several years ago, and that isn't even so much what I'm referring to generally um, in discussing things. I have an agent, and in discussing uh, script ideas with her and with various directors and stuff that I meet from time to time, if I mention uh, a concept, a play concept, which does not deal with Irish Catholics or something like that, then people say, uh, well, you know, you have to be one to write one, so why don't you write no, something? That's not true. No, that's no, no, true. That, that, that's not true. I, I think that if you're a writer, first of all, uh, I don't have to prove that I'm a black writer. A blind man can see that I'm black. I mean, that makes me a black writer. What I choose to write about has nothing to do with the color of my skin. Um, black is not a nationality. Uh, white is not a nationality, we're Americans. 
So we write about the American experience, unless, of course, you've lived other places. So I don't get bogged down into those kind of things. I know that it exists, you see, but I don't spend every day worrying about the fact that I'm black and I can only write about the black experience and someone is going to only expect me to write about the black experience. If that's what they expect, that's their problem. You see, I'm a writer. I can't deal with that. So the only thing I can do is write what I want to write about and keep trying to get them produced. Now, it just might be that they'll never get produced, but I have to keep trying. And I think that any other Irish Catholic writer has to do the same, a Puerto Rican writer has to do the same, a black writer. You write about what you want to write about. And if someone else has problems with that, that's something they'll have to deal with. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if the NEC treated you that way, I mean, it's, it's their loss. It's not yours. You're yeah. still a writer. You still got your place. Eventually, people so, really, it takes forever, but they really do say, my gosh, you have eyes in your head and ears and, and an imagination, and you really can write something other than your own experience, can't sure. you? I but think yes, you have to. But, it, but you, have, you just have to do it. Uh, could I mention also for the, uh, for the lady who had a problem with copyright, uh, until you're able to get your forms from the uh, Copyright Office in Washington, it's still considered legal to mail a copy of the play to yourself, uh, registered mail, and then when you receive it, don't open it, don't break the seal. So until it's legally copyrighted, that's still considered valid. Look, even the post office, you can never be sure whether it's <laughs> My name is Mickey Elias, and uh, I am one of the producers of the Process Studio Theatre, which is a fairly new showcase theatre off-off-Broadway theatre in downtown Manhattan. And we've been working for the past three years to develop a technique of solving many of the problems that you're dealing with, all the lack of trust and the uh, lack of communication between actors and directors and writers and designers. And uh, we're doing very well with that. One of the voids that we have, though, is in the area of playwriting. We do not have a person who can organize a playwriting workshop, not a qualified person anyway. And uh, what we're trying to do, or what we would like to do, is find some sort of source of uh, new writers. We've tried advertisement, and we, what we have gotten through the advertisement has, a great deal, has been a great deal of self-indulgence and uh, television scripts, as was mentioned before. So for any writers, if you have any suggestions, how playwriters, playwrights, and uh, producers of Showcase Theater might get together. What is the name of your theater? Process Studio Theater. The Dramatist Guild is a fairly useful organization yeah. in that sense, which produces, uh, has a, uh, a magazine, which uh, if you talk to somebody at the Dramatist Guild quarterly, it's called, can certainly steer you in the right direction so that the people who want to do the kind of script that you're not interested in won't send them to you. Drama Guild is quite helpful. We, we've got about 3,500 playwrights and about, uh, you know, 45 are writing. <laughs> I was going to say you're 3,500 members. Yeah. Uh, the, only, the only problem is it's, it's like people sending uh, scripts out to, to regional theaters and off-off-Broadway groups if they don't know the, the aesthetic of the group, they waste their time. And so you're interested only in a, in a, certain, kind of, a certain kind of script, aren't you? No, we're, we're interested in doing anything that is interesting, basically. Uh, we are trying to get an art in a commercial kind of a system. That's why we don't want to do what we call television scripts that are written in the style of television. Well, then, one of the best ways, of course, is to uh, 
go around and, and, and as, you, as you probably are, seeing as much theater as you possibly can. And whenever you run across a playwright whose work you think is interesting, ask him to, uh, to uh, do something with you. I find that the best way to, to find the most interesting work. Okay, thank you. Marticia Palmer, actress, uh, working observer at the studio. I watched your play, Mr. Albee, Everything in the Garden, evolve in the studio production recently. Would you comment on that production, and are there any plans to do it again? I didn't see the actor studio production of Everything in the Garden. I didn't know that it was happening until after it had begun. <laughs> I was told that the director, Shelley Winters, had made a number of cuts and changes in mm. the text, and so I didn't go see it. <laughs> <laughs> are there any plans to do that play again? <laughs> By the studio? Oh, wherever. <laughs> that answers my question. Uh, uh, everything in the garden get, uh, gets done with, uh, with, with some frequency, especially in colleges. And it's also a very, very popular play in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in general, <laughs> as, you, as you might imagine. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, the two plays of mine that are most popular in, in Eastern Europe are first The Death of Bessie Smith, Naturally, Naturally, as you might expect, racial prejudice in the United States, right. and everything in the garden, which postulates that all middle-class American housewives under 50 are whores. <laughs> and, and so naturally, it's, it's, it's very popular in Eastern very Europe. Popular. But uh, I don't think that anybody's got, got a commercial Broadway production plan that I know of. Uh, certainly, it won't, it won't come from, uh, uh, from Shelley Winter's production. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Mari Manel, and this is a question for Ms. Merriam. I wondered if you could discuss somewhat the differences in writing for the musical theater uh, versus straight theater, and some preferences that you have for one or the other. Well, I love writing for the musical theater because you have collaborators, so you can always blame it on collaborators. <laughs> Things don't work out. Um, Writing for the straight theater is something that absolutely terrifies me, and I am about to do it. So if I look <laughs> a little green, that's why. Um, I think it's, it's easier, in a way, to write for the straight theater because you have more control, just as the theater is a place where the writer is in control rather than in television. So I think the essence of theater for a writer being in charge is a straight play. Um, that's about all I can say. There is a certain joy if you find a good collaborator and, and, then, and you can spark each other into... I'm talking yes. about a composer, yes. Yes, yes. it is. The, I, if I could just a point of privilege for a moment. I'm, semantics drive me crazy, and I would like so much to ask that the next time you have a discussion, it not be the playwright and his script, as we've heard so much, playwrights and their scripts, okay? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Alvey, can you give us an update on your involvement with Lincoln Center? As playwright in residence there, there was talk that you would be producing the work of new American playwrights. Lincoln Center is a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapped in an enigma. Uh, yes. I was informed about a year and a half ago, or I was asked if I would be on the board of directors of the revival of Lincoln Center. Um, what has happened in the past year and a half is this board of directors has never met. And uh, I got rather tired of that, and so I spoke to some people, and I decided that it was time that we have in the small theater downstairs at Lincoln Center at the uh, Newhouse Theater a season of new American plays. And for the past six, eight months, I've been collecting 
uh, a whole set of new American plays, by which I mean not only plays from the United States, but also from Canada and Latin America, since my definition of America seems somewhat broader than, than a number of other people's. I haven't spoken to the people at Lincoln Center. The last time I spoke to them, they told me that I could go right ahead and do this, and that <laughs> we, we would have a season uh, uh, in the autumn. I've received already about 25, 30 plays, and I'm expecting, haven't gotten his yet, I'm expecting sure, sure, a, a sure. number of others. And I believe, unless they've been lying to me all this time, that uh, we will have a season of New American Plays starting in the autumn. I do, I, do I'm, I refuse to do this all on my own hook, however. And so I'm going to insist that this board of directors do get together and read all of these plays and come to some sort of concerted uh, judgment about them. But I believe it's happening. I don't know. Will these plays be done in some kind of simplified scenic? scenic uh, well, once you once you work in a theater like the New House Theater, which is a, a three-quarter thrust house with no place for, uh, for for scenery dropping or coming from the sides, obviously you're going to simplify. But I've discovered that most of your serious plays, especially by newer playwrights, younger playwrights, are the kind of play that like most serious plays, don't need a great deal of scenery and props to be effective. I really can't think of very many plays that are any good that do need, that do rely upon scenery and props. Uh, I asked people to submit short plays, uh, generally, because I've discovered that playwrights are willing to take far more, many more chances and be a good deal more adventuresome mm -hmm. uh, with the short play form because they're not trying for, uh, for the commercial um, uh, market with them. Uh, yes, indeed, I imagine that it will be rather concentrated or, or, or simple. Uh, uh, um, so I'm just thinking the economics of it. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, who is trying to put up the money? Lincoln well, Center? Well, I, I, I believe Lincoln Center has been collecting several million dollars over the past really? six or eight months. <laughs> but not all for this series. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. I can't get a straight answer out of anybody. <laughs> this concludes. I think that we're going to have to conclude this seminar, and then you will ask your question as soon as we, I make this announcement, that the seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the wing. And I can't thank our panelists enough for being here. I am eternally grateful for the kind of sharing of knowledge and experiences that we have on the panels and for the wing. And a little quick footnote, these are a direct outgrowth of, of a man named Kermit Bloomgarden, late producer, who brought Hotel Baltimore up to Broadway from the city's rep. And Mr. Bloomgarden was a great believer in sharing knowledge. And at the wing school at that time, this kind of thing took place very naturally. Since the wing no longer has a school, we do it through our seminars. And thank you both for being such a good audience and to our panelists for being so very, very sharing on the panel this morning on the play script and the playwrights. <laughs>
very good about helping playwrights. He's been doing it for a very long while, so it's certainly for him and not for me. I suspect that given the state of the theater now, that the 20 or 25 of the very best regional theaters around this country, uh, you think of places like the Arena Stage, the Long Wharf in New Haven, the uh, Seattle Rep, uh, there are any number of them that are interested in producing new plays by new playwrights. They probably are the most sympathetic outlet for new plays now. There are a number of very, very good off and off-off Broadway production groups. Uh, some of them are rather tentative uh, in, in their survival, but uh, they, I consider them to be regional theaters too, because regional has nothing to do with regionalism uh, in, in the very best sense. The regional theater, whether it's in New York or elsewhere, provides a young new playwright with a, a good place to work without terrible commercial pressures from the very beginning. Uh, I made a facetious remark earlier about the agent being that person who wants you when you don't need him anymore. There are exceptions to this, of course. But generally speaking, an agent is not going to have, because he's so busy, the access to the particular kind of regional theater mentality that you need. So the regional theaters may well be, whether they're in New York or not, your very best bet. They read, they care about. Edward, does the Dramatist Guild have, uh, aren't they making uh, uh, available to playwrights some sort of Xeroxing uh, so that the playwrights can afford to have copies made of their plays, which they then can distribute more widely in the, than they have in the I past. believe we have some funding for this, but yeah. I don't know exactly but how it works. Is that only for members? Or? Uh, I imagine yeah. so, but yeah. it's very easy to become an associate member of the Dramatist Guild, too. And I wish everybody who's a playwright would, because we, we do protect the playwright in ways that an innocent in, in, in the woods uh, won't know about. Can anybody become a member? Or they just anybody written? can become an associate member. Anyone can be, be associate. All you have to do is have, to have written a play. Mm -hmm. right. Or a one, lyric, or a... Have just one more question here. No. Yes, I think there is one more question. Yeah. I'm open my mouth every day with a say I don't have the limit to say I'm 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 the limit